Today is March the 23rd, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and the other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is www.pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. PRN.LIVE streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on PRN.LIVE on the Internet. I'm eagerly looking forward to returning into the studio for live calls from you, the listening audience. In the meantime, however, you can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Amazon Prime memberships are now harder to cancel. Amazon Prime is a very attractive proposition for many customers, but if you try to cancel Amazon's monthly subscription, you'll first have to go through a lengthy process. It was revealed that Amazon uses dark patterns to trick users into signing up for Amazon Prime, Now new details emerge that show how the company also uses complex tactics to stop customers from canceling their Amazon Prime memberships. Further internal documents obtained by Business Insider show that the company intentionally made it harder for Amazon Prime subscribers to cancel their subscriptions. The companies established the project Iliad back in 2017. The project had the goal of limiting the number of prime cancellations that happen. Amazon then developed its complicated process, and cancellations dropped by 14% at one point during the year. Despite internal concerns, Amazon Prime's complicated cancel process remains. Subscribers can go through several different windows and warnings before they can finally cancel their memberships. Internal documents within Amazon detailed Project Iliad, and attempt to drive down the number of people canceling their Amazon Prime memberships to reduce user churn on the service and retain a Prime-based revenue stream. Spanning several years, Project Iliad introduced several steps to complicate the cancellation process, according to documents obtained by Business Insider. Though it has evolved over the years, Amazon Prime still has a multi-step cancellation process, which has led to complaints to the Federal Trade Commission and some consumer interest bodies. The Norwegian Consumer Council stated in a January 2021 report the following. Throughout the process, Amazon manipulates users through wording and graphic design, making the process needlessly difficult and frustrating to understand. Dark patterns or manipulative design are features of user interface design that nudge or push consumers into making choices that are in the best interest of the service provider, rather than in the interest of the consumer. This may include that certain options are easier to choose than others, that consumers are tricked into giving consent to sharing personal data, and many other practices. Companies such as Amazon seem to speculate that they can discourage customers from canceling their subscriptions either by heavily emphasizing the benefits that will be lost upon cancellation or by making the process so complicated that its users simply give up. Amazon Prime is a service combination of free shipping on selected purchases, access to video and music streaming content, cloud storage, and digital reading options, among other perks, is for $139 annual fee. But no subscription service should make it difficult to cancel. The current prime cancellation process is one that requires multiple steps of confirmation offers before one can ultimately pull the plug on the ongoing fee. Amazon Prime said customer transparency and trust are top priorities for us. By design, they They also say that they make it clear and simple for customers to both sign up for or cancel their Prime membership. And they also stated they continually listen to customer feedback 
and look for ways to improve the customer experience. Hey, wasn't it Amazon that patented the one-step process to order? Why can't they use that same technique to make that order a cancellation? Germany's Federal Office for Information Security, known as the BSI, is warning companies against using Kaspersky antivirus products due to threats made by Russia against the European Union, NATO, and Germany. Kaspersky is a Moscow-based cybersecurity and antivirus provider founded in 1997 that has a long history of success, but also controversy over the company's possible relationship with the Russian government. Kaspersky's founder and CEO, Eugene Kaspersky, recently expressed a wish for compromise regarding Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which sparked outrage on Twitter, with many rejecting the firm's stance on the matter. Kaspersky is also believed to offer its cybersecurity protection services to Russian state IT infrastructure, making it a concern that the company cannot stay completely neutral. The BSI is warning German companies to replace Kaspersky antivirus and any other products from that firm with alternative software from non-Russian vendors. As the BSI statement explains, antivirus software typically has a higher level of privileges on Windows systems, maintaining a permanent, encrypted, and non-verifiable connection to the vendor servers for constant virus definition updates. Furthermore, as real-time protection from almost all antivirus vendors can upload suspicious files to remote servers for further analysis, there is concern that antivirus developers could use their software to exfiltrate sensitive files. While Kaspersky is likely trustworthy and ethical, it still has to abide by Russian laws and regulations, including allowing state agents to access private firm databases. BSI is taking this further by suggesting that Kaspersky can be forced into aiding the Russian intelligence forces in carrying out cyber attacks or conducting espionage. The actions of military and or intelligence forces in Russia and the threats made by Russia against the EU, NATO, and the Federal Republic of Germany in the course of the current military conflict are associated with a considerable risk of a successful IT attack. A Russian IT manufacturer can carry out offensive operations itself, be forced to attack target systems against its will, or be spied on as a victim of a cyber operation, or be misused as a tool for attacks against its own customers. To avoid panic moves like switching off protection without activating a replacement security product, BSI advises all organizations to prepare accordingly by first performing a complete assessment. Also, whenever a switch to alternative security products takes place, loss of comfort, functionality, and even safety is expected, so a remediation plan to address all that must be developed. This warning has already led to German organizations to no longer use Kaspersky services. However, Kaspersky's believe that BSI's warning to remove Kaspersky's product is a political decision rather than a technical assessment of their products. A Kaspersky spokesperson shared the following statement. We believe this decision is not based on a technical assessment of Kaspersky products that we continuously advocated for and with the BSI and across Europe, but instead it's being made on political grounds. We will continue to assure our partners and customers in the quality and integrity of our products, and we will be working with the BSI for clarification on its decision and for the means to address its and other regulators' concerns. Kaspersky is one of the more transparent antivirus companies out there, and since 2017, allegations that it was working with the Russian government to steal U.S. intelligence data Kaspersky moved its data processing centers and passed a SOC 2 audit. SOC 2, that's SOC 2, stands for Systems and Organization Controls 2. It was created to provide auditors with guidance for evaluating an organization security protocols. The SOC 2 security framework covers how 
company should handle customers' data that's stored in the cloud. Kaspersky is one of the world's largest privately owned cybersecurity companies. They operate in 200 countries and territories and have 35 offices in 31 countries. Over 4,000 people work for Kaspersky. The warning by the German government is inference by association. However, the U.S. government had banned Kaspersky products for government use back in September of 2017 over concerns to Russian government influence. Can Kaspersky products be trusted? Boy, that's a complicated question. While Samsung is the world's biggest memory chip maker, it is a distant second in contract logic chip manufacturing. The company has been lagging behind Taiwan Semiconductor, its main rival, for years now. And the situation doesn't seem to be improving at all, at least going by its 4 nanometers chip production yields. During its 54th annual shareholders meeting, the South Korean firm revealed that more advanced semiconductor process nodes, like the 4 nanometer and 5 nanometer, are pretty complex, and it will take time to improve yields. It is being reported that Samsung Foundry's yields for 4 nanometer Snapdragon 8 Gen 1 chips are very low at just 35%. If this information is correct, it's a matter of concern for the company. The MediaTek Dimensity 9000 chipset, which is fabricated on Taiwan Semiconductor's 4th nanometer node, is reportedly more power efficient than the Exynos 2200 and the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1 that are made on Samsung's 4 nanometer process. Samsung Foundry reportedly lost Qualcomm as its client for upcoming high-end chips. It was reported a few weeks ago that Samsung Foundry has lost Qualcomm as a client for its upcoming 4 nanometer and 3 nanometer chips. The company has reportedly chosen Taiwan Semiconductor as its chip manufacturer for the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1 Plus, which could be released sometime in the second half of 2022. The Taiwanese firm now has three big clients, Apple, MediaTek, and Qualcomm. However, Samsung is hoping to improve its performance with its 3 nanometer process that could be launched by the end of 2022 or 2023. The South Korean firm will use a completely new GAA, otherwise known as the gate all round process, for its 3 nanometer technology, which according to industry experts could improve performance by a significant margin. Taiwan Semiconductor is yet to adopt a GAA technology. Will Samsung be able to win back key clients like Apple and Qualcomm for advanced process nodes? Only time can answer that question. Members of a hacker gang may act in Russia's interest. For years, Russia's cybercrime groups have acted with relative impunity. The Kremlin and local law enforcement have largely turned a blind eye to disruptive ransomware attacks as long as they didn't target Russian companies. Despite direct pressure on Vladimir Putin to tackle ransomware groups, they're still intimately tied to Russia's interests. A recent leak from one of the most notorious such groups provides a glimpse into the nature of those ties and just how tenuous they may be. A cache of 60,000 leaked chat messages and files from the notorious Conti ransomware group provides glimpses of how the criminal gang is well-connected within Russia. An anonymous Ukrainian cybersecurity researcher who infiltrated the group show how Conti operates on a daily basis and its crypto ambitions. They likely further reveal how Conti members have connections to the Federal Security Service, that's the FSB, and an acute awareness of the operations of Russia's government-backed military hackers. As the world was struggling to come to grips with the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak and early waves in July 2020, cyber criminals around the world turned their attention to the health crisis. On July the 16th of that year, the governments of UK, US, and Canada publicly called out Russia's state-backed military hackers for trying to steal intellectual property related to the earliest vaccine candidates. 
The hacking group Cozy Bear, also known as Advanced Persistent Threat 29, that's APT 29, was attacking pharma businesses and universities using altered malware and known vulnerabilities. While evidence of Conti's direct ties to the Russian government remains elusive, the gang's activities continue to fall in line with national interests. The impression from the leaked chats is that the leaders of Conti understood that they were allowed to operate as long as they followed unspoken guidelines from the Russian government. There appeared to be at least some lines of communication between the Russian government and the Conti leadership. Russian patronism is constant throughout the Conti group, which has many of its members based in the country. However, the group is international in its scope, has members in Ukraine and Belarus, and has links to members further afield. Not all of the group agree with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and members have discussed the war with the globalization of these ransomware groups. Just because Conti leadership aligned well with Russian politics does not mean that the affiliates felt the same way. Since Conti's internal files were published on February 27th and 28th, the group has continued to work. They definitely reacted, said the director of threat intelligence at the security firm Malware Bytes. You could see from the chats that they were closing some stuff and switching to private chats, but it was really business as usual. The group has continued to post the names and files of ransomware victims on its website in the weeks since the leak. Conti's hacking continues despite security researchers using the details in the Conti leaks to potentially name the group's individual members. The greater threat to the group, however, could come from Russia's government itself. On January the 14th, Russia took its most significant action yet against a ransom gang, and the FSB arrested 14 members of the R-Evil group after tip-offs from U.S. officials, although the group has largely been dormant for several months. Action will be taken if the Russian authorities feel the leaders of Conti have outlived their usefulness, but if Conti is able to continue on or if they are able to rebrand, there will likely be no action. If action is taken, it will likely be similar to the action taken against members of R-Evil, with a series of showy arrests only to quietly release most of those arrested a month or so later. Counterfeit chips a danger to national security. Scammers exploit global supply chain crunch. Counterfeiters are making the most of the ongoing electronic supply crunch by peddling sham semiconductors to desperate buyers and it's caught the attention of governments. In a report out this month, the European Union law enforcement agency Europol highlighted the dangers of knockoff semiconductors to critical infrastructure as well as people's private devices. The fear is that within the planet's complex supply chains, someone under pressure from customers to fulfill orders by any means necessary accepts components that turn out to be fake, and these will end up in equipment. These parts can be readily picked up from online marketplaces, and they look convincingly enough. Europost report counterfeiters are exploiting the global supply shortage in semiconductor chips. The supply chains are global and vulnerable to the introduction of counterfeits, since typically several distributors handle components before they reach the manufacturing sites. Tracing the original supplier of the counterfeit semiconductors can be difficult when trademark counterfeit trips are verified by the semiconductor firms. Disruptions in the supply chains and the possible introduction of counterfeit components has the potential to cause serious failures in critical infrastructures. Semiconductors are an integral part of critical systems used in the healthcare sector, transport, defense, and trade. The risk of privately used electronic devices being affected is also high. Additionally, counterfeit electronic devices may also feature malware and other harmful software adding to the risk of data theft. There are all sorts of fake chips and components. Some are imitations that try to work like the real thing. Some are worn out or broken parts dressed up to appear new and working. 
and some are completely different components of a rebadge. Europol also warned of imitation pharmaceuticals, toys, and consumer products. The European Union-based criminal networks distribute imported counterfeit goods and, in some cases, operate facilities that assemble semi-finished products. The United States Department of Homeland Security tied counterfeit components to national security in a January report about the semiconductor supply chain. Many counterfeit or used components originating from China, which are branded as original products, could be used in aircraft or medical products. The Homeland Security report had one example of Chinese workers in assembly plants secretly producing extra products or repackaging rejected components as new products. The ERAI, which is the Electronic Resellers Association International, tracks counterfeit electronic products. The ERAI has a goal to fight counterfeit components and devices. Fake electronics can be anonymously reported to ERAI, which provides intelligence to its members so they can vet vendors and avoid counterfeit kit. In 2020, about 80% of those reported devices were reported for the very first time that year, indicating there was a crop of newly knocked off parts. The identification of counterfeit parts is becoming better with technology, which helps the aerospace industry verify parts and has also helped reduce the use of counterfeit electronics. Homeland Security is also awarding contracts to small businesses to develop tools to help check that parts are genuine. Blockchain technology is being considered by the semiconductor industry to track parts and materials to the original source. Is Windows 11 ready for prime time? Let's take an objective look at it. What are the system requirements for System 11? Your device must be running Windows 10, version 2004 or later, to upgrade. Free updates are available. Processor must be 1 GHz or faster, with two or more cores on a compatible 64-bit processor. You need a minimum of 4 GB of RAM, and probably a lot more, and a minimum of 64 GB or larger storage device. The system firmware requires UEFI, Secure Boot Capable, and here's a kicker, TPM. TPM stands for Trusted Platform Module, version 2.0, and an 8th generation Intel CPU or AMD equivalent CPU. Windows 11 Preview was released on June the 28th of last year, and the official release of Windows 11 was October 4th of last year. And two days later, Microsoft approved a hack that helps you bypass Windows 11 install requirements. When Windows 11 was officially launched, many people couldn't install it because of the strict hardware requirements that PCs must meet. Most notably, Windows 11 requires TPM 2.0, but there's a few ways to get around these requirements, including a registry hack provided by Microsoft itself. This is a big deal because Microsoft is responsible for setting these painful system requirements in place, and it supposedly did so in the name of ensuring Windows 11 is a secure, modern operating system. However, PC enthusiasts have quickly found ways in which you can actually upgrade to Windows 11 without a TPM. And now it seems Microsoft is admitting these requirements can and should be bypassed in some cases, such as like on some of selective surface systems. Though the company has issued strict warnings about Windows 11 PCs not qualifying for updates if they don't meet the minimum system requirements. A new open source script has been released that bypasses the TPM check and lets you force install Windows 11 on your computer and on virtual machines. This script, released as part of the Universal Media Creation Tool wrapper on GitHub, force installs Windows 11 on your PC. TPM 2.0 is required for Windows 11. Microsoft has explained that TPM 2.0 module is needed as an important building block 
for a number of Windows 11 features. Features like identity protection with Windows Hello, BitLocker, and so on. TPM also helps encrypt crucial data, so if your machine ever gets stolen, all the information on your hard drive is kept safe. This is provided the TPM is still enabled, which explains why Windows 11 is requiring it at a system level. GitHub project has a script called skip TPM check on dynamic update command. This script makes the Windows 11 installer ignore your system if your system doesn't have TPM 2.0. The script also forces the installer to overlook other requirements your system may not meet. Not having enough RAM or system storage will no longer pose an issue with this script. With a Microsoft disclaimer, Microsoft has stated that should you force install Windows 11, you will no longer receive updates and future support. In fact, you have to sign a waiver absolving Microsoft of blame should the worst happen after installing Windows 11 on incompatible hardware. The minimum requirements of Windows 11 is an 8th generation processor to meet all the requirements needed for Windows 11 for it to run smoothly and to avoid incompatibility on your device and application. How do you know if your CPU qualifies? Well, if it's an Intel processor, do a search on Windows 11 supported Intel processors and you'll get a whole list. And if you have an AMD processor, similarly, do a search on Windows 11 supported AMD processors. Now, we find out that Windows 11 will add a watermark if you use unsupported hardware. Microsoft doesn't want you using workarounds to run Windows 11 now on older PCs. Microsoft isn't just reserving watermarks for unactivated or bootleg Windows copies. The most recent Windows 11 release preview, build 22000.588, applies a watermark to the desktop. If you use a workaround to run the operating system on unsupported hardware, well, if you try to do it, you'll see a system requirement not met notice. The company started testing the watermark in Windows 11 builds release in February. Its inclusion in the release preview indicates Microsoft is ready to bring the alert to a completed software update in the near future. Windows 11 officially requires either an 8th generation Intel Core CPU or an AMD chip based on a Zen Plus or Zen 2 architecture. Many believe the cutoff is arbitrary and have used a Microsoft-sanctioned registry tweak to bypass a CPU check and install the operating system without a rejection message. Microsoft has warned it might not provide updates to these CPUs, but the software should still work. In practice, a purely cosmetic mark like this is more a disclaimer than a deterrent. It is a reminder that Microsoft won't help you if the software misbehaves on an unsupported machine. If you're comfortable bypassing the CPU check in the first place, you can likely remove the watermark as well. Still, this might prove annoying if you've been running Windows 11 on an out-of-spec PC without hassles. Windows 11 hardware features can easily be implemented in software. The same goes for advanced instruction sets. Microsoft is indecisive in releasing Windows 11. Specific hardware requirements are required but at the same time, they also publish workarounds. Now they are saying Windows 11 running workarounds will have a watermark. In essence, Microsoft is having the public do product testing for them at no cost. For me, as far as I'm concerned, Windows 11 is not ready for prime time. I'm not setting aside my latest hardware for Microsoft testing. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. Building your brand on LinkedIn, part three of three. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about leveraging computers and technology and doing that in the workplace, but also for the workplace. That's kind of leading into the fact that we're in the closing segment of our Building Your Brand on LinkedIn. Now, LinkedIn is a powerful location for us to interact with not only our past 
coworkers, but future coworkers, future employers. So I want you, as part of building your brand on LinkedIn, I want you to connect regularly. If you're doing this passively, if you're doing this just kind of casually, I want you to connect one hour per month. And I don't care which day of the month, but I want you to set aside one day out of the month, whether it is the first Saturday, the last Saturday, the third Wednesday after work. You know, you you, you need to set aside one hour per month to really be going through and updating this. Now, I I don't practice necessarily what I preach. Uh, I do it a lot more when I'm job hunting and a lot less when I'm gainfully employed. But I still want you to look at this and I want you to, to really reflect on how well you're connecting up. If you can spend that kind of time on Facebook, you can spend that kind of time on LinkedIn, which is a potential for you to make more money. Yes. So if you're actively searching, I want you to put in a minimum of 10 minutes per day. 10 minutes per day. Now that's per work day. You know, it's part of a job. It's part of whatever. And you know what? At the end of your work day, I want you to, uh, you know, when you go offline and, you know, if you're working from home, just shift over to your personal computer. You know, if you're working from the office, when you get home, you spend 10 minutes there. And I want you to update, update, update. You should be updating everything on LinkedIn. If you can't update, I want you to repost a favorite article. Somebody posted an article on LinkedIn. I want you to just repost that you know, on your own channel or perhaps go on out to one of the different websites in in the technical field or non-technical field that you work in and find some neat article. Make sure you read the whole thing and then repost that. Now, you can also write your own articles. This is a chance for you to put out a publication and for you to spend some time. Now, it takes a little bit longer for you to sit there and write up some level of insight and expression of your expertise, but it's also very valuable to do that. So I want you to consider, again, reposting or writing articles on LinkedIn, but I also want your information there. Whatever it is that you're putting, that content should be positive. It should be helpful. It should be supportive. I will tell you, there are a few people that I see on LinkedIn, and and these are friends of mine, and they're they're posting. I've got one in mind. He posts some really negative items. And I'll tell you that I believe that that is going to hurt him in the long run. His level of pessimism comes out through all of the different things he posts. I I know somebody else who posts a lot of sunshine and unicorns and all of all that kind of stuff. And I I know that that person that young lady is going to get further even though it's it's kind of it's kind of out there at times i know that because of that positive attitude that that's going to that's reflecting through through everything she's putting out there it's going to help her so uh, look whatever it is you're doing you want to be seen you want to be doing things that highlight that you are a potential productive future employee of whoever it is that's looking at your particular item that you posted on LinkedIn. Now, I also want you to consider participating in some of the different groups that are out there. I want you to consider being just a little bit more connected, much like you would with Facebook, because this unlike Facebook, is, again, going to be productive. It's going to help you for the future. I want you to also consider going on out there and going to former coworkers, current coworkers, and asking for recommendations, asking them to look over your LinkedIn profile and saying, hey, let's improve this a little bit better. What can, what can I do here? What, what can I do there? Let's, let's have them provide that input towards making you a better person on LinkedIn, a better potential contact, a better potential connection, or again, future employee. 
So there's a lot to this. I want you to reflect on the power of LinkedIn. I want you to reflect on just what it can provide to you. You may not be aware of the statistics. Go on out there. Look up for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Look up for yourself. What kind of statistics are saying that LinkedIn is the place to get your next job? Even if you're not job hunting right now, even if you're not looking right now, even if you're not planning on leaving your company until you retire, this is still something that you should be doing. Why? Because things change. The world changes. Our jobs will change. Our boss, our coworkers, all of this is constantly in flux. And at some point you may say, it's time. I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to go catch the next biggest, best thing, whatever it is. It wouldn't be the first time that somebody's done that. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Chip sanctions impact on Russia. In late February, the United States imposed a ban on selling high-tech products, including semiconductors and telecommunication systems used by the defense, aerospace, and maritime industries to Russia and its ally Belarus, days after Russia invaded Ukraine. The ban also extended to certain foreign items produced with U.S. equipment, software, or blueprints. South Korea and Taiwan, which dominate in high-end chips, and Japan, strong in chip-making materials and tools, have also banned exports of the items that the U.S. has put on its export control list. Their moves cut off Russia's access to many top-end chips and materials and components needed to recreate production of such items locally. For Russia, the impact from the coordinated sanctions will be significant. The big export bans are going to be on semiconductors and high-end semiconductors, in particular for which Korea and Taiwan almost monopolize production. So there won't be supply of that anywhere that Russia can lean on. While the sanctions would appear to limit Russia's access to chip supplies, the actual impact couldn't fully be determined. Russia continues to largely rely on foreign technology to design chips and has limited chip production capabilities of its own. In 2020, Russia imported roughly $440 million worth of semiconductor devices, including components like diodes and transistors, and around $1.25 billion worth of electronic integrated circuits or chips, built by incorporating various components according to the United States ComTrade database. While the majority of these imports come from Asian countries that aren't imposing sanctions, Russia would still be left in the dark on high-end chips or homegrown chips. Taiwan produces most of the world's cutting-edge semiconductors, with the rest produced in South Korea. South Korea also dominates in memory chips, while Japan is a stronghold of semiconductor materials and manufacturing tools, both crucial for chipbuilding. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, the world's biggest contract chipmaker, said it is committed to complying with the new export control rules. South Korea's Samsung Electronics, a leading memory chipmaker and electronic producer, said this month it has suspended shipment of all its products to Russia because of geopolitical developments and is monitoring the situation to determine its next steps. Russia's chipbuilding technology lags behind that of industry leader Taiwan Semiconductor by more than 15 years, said Western Semiconductor Industry executives who have studied the state of Russia's industry. The country's leading chipmaker, Micron Group, has said it is the only local company capable of mass-producing semiconductors with a 65-nanometer circuitry, a technology that was introduced to the industry for mass production back in 2006. Some of the leading Russian design chips are assembled by Taiwan Semiconductor. Russia could lose access to some of these chips, 
though it couldn't be determined whether these ships would be hit by the sanctions. The latest Baikal microprocessors widely used in many Russian-made computers and servers are built by Taiwan Semiconductor, according Baikal Electronics, a Russian company that designed the chips and certain of their latest Elbrus microprocessors designed by the Moscow Center of Spark Technologies were slated to be manufactured by Taiwan Semiconductor. Documents from the Russian company showed. Taiwan Semiconductor declined to comment beyond its statement on the sanctions. The international tech sanctions are in effect immediately, though their impact will take months, potentially years to be felt across Russia's strategic industries. One such area is arms sale. Russia is the world's second largest arms exporter after the United States, with Russia-made weaponry including advanced air defense systems, radar, and missiles accounting for roughly 20% of global arms sales, according to the U.S. Congressional Research Service. Semiconductors that go into military applications are developed with specialized materials and circuit designs enabling them to withstand radiation while maintaining performance. Improving such aspects is critical for next-generation weapons. In addition, artificial intelligence, high-speed 5G internet service, and robotics technologies, partly driven by advanced ships, have become priorities for Russia's leadership in recent years as it looks to modernize and diversify its economy. Russia's tech ambitions would definitely hit a snag without the high-end chips. The tech sanctions largely exclude consumer tech products. It is unlikely Russia would carve out chips from consumer devices like smartphones and repurpose them for weapons, given the cost and technical difficulties. China is Russia's strategic partner, and some Chinese chip makers could replace suppliers of capacitors and transistors. However, Chinese chip makers aren't able to mass-produce the industry-cutting-edge chips, lagging behind in industry. And even for the older technology chips, Chinese companies may not be in a position to step up, reluctant to risk escalating tensions with the United States. Should companies take steps to evade these controls, they run the real risk of being cut off from access to U.S. technologies. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. They're going to be talking about sci-fi technology and technobabble. Marty, how's it going? Oh, I'm having fun. At long last, having fun yes, again after, yeah. uh, you know, they say stress is your friend, and then the wrinkles turn into ravines, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, we were watching a Perry Mason episode, and... Uh, yeah. The college head mm-hmm. had, he was bald on top, but his old nickname was Curly. And an old friend of his came to the campus, which was set up as part of the plot. And uh, the, when they're alone together and they remain friends, he, he says, uh, and, and there's nothing else. I mean, it's just friendship. Uh, she says, oh, oh, Curly, the years haven't been good. You've been scalped. <laughs> <laughs> And and he said, "Well, every year comes with tomahawks." <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Oh dear. So you know, let's let's spin off of that. For the, with with television, there's a lot of sci-fi coming back to TV right now. Oh yeah, the new seasons and even more. I mean, the shows are fun and the plots are fun. You can be disdainful. You can say. Yeah, well, it's supposed to be about everybody, but it's only about that captain. You know, I who cares? <laughs> <laughs> the whole the whole thing yeah, is a yeah. kick, and it's it, it it's fun. But what do we have? Uh, two weeks ago, it it was the return of Star Trek Discovery, right? And last week, second season of Picard. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it, he's he's starting to look like an animatronic at this point, or, a <laughs> or something. But it, he, God bless him, he's there. And, they they wheel him in like Captain Pike, but uh, he's he's right. he, but he's <laughs> yeah. Stand, stand him up, and then they hope that he's he's stable there, and they step away. Yeah. <laughs> and and the new guys who make fun of it, you know that this this was just a few days ago. The, the, Orville. <laughs> the Orville. Yes. So I don't have Hulu. But, uh, you know, I appreciated Oroville when it was on uh, on the air. I thought it was so much better than the first and second. The first and second seasons of Oroville were so much better than Discovery at the time. And it was like, why couldn't we get this? Why why couldn't we have this? Well, the, everybody has a little bit of that this. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and look, if there is an audience that can appreciate the fake tech of these shows, it's the audience that's <laughs> listening to us now. <laughs> Yes, techno babble reigns supreme, oh, and uh, the inventive nature of the writers to dr- just pull things out of the air is just amazing. Or push things into it. You know, Discovery, amazingly, has a, a big wall high 270 degree video screen, and that is their backdrop. No paint, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, no canvas, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no carpentry. And if they want to show a ship blowing up or entering some weird zone in face, you can turn around. It's behind you. It's on that yeah, screen. Yeah. You, it, it's not yeah. just blue or green and waiting for post. Sure. So, yeah. Now, and the Mandalorian did that. A lot of a yeah. lot of groups are doing this. And that is going to be just amazing for the future and all of all of production. I figure you're doing it because the room looks clean and tidy behind you. Uh, my secret's out. Actually, that's <laughs> that is that is one of the Skype backgrounds. No, <laughs> it'd be nice if I could get one that looks kind of reasonable. Yeah, well, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why why make your head pixelate? You know <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But look, every one of these shows has something a little bit interesting on on Discovery, which is farther in the future than anybody. You know, blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. On, on Discovery. They came up with the concept of programmable matter and some of their shields and some of their repair stuff. They reach for their belt and what comes out could be a weapon, could be a tricorder. uh, You know, for all I know, it could be a Frisbee. It's all based on programmable matter and uh, I guess how they touch it when they when they go touch it. Mm-hmm. Programmable matter on the shields uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago. Programmable matter on the EV suits. To wow. adjust them in place to filter out something they'd never encountered before. This is okay. So, so this is kind of like on House. There was the uh, the meningitis season. There was the Hodgkin's disease season. <laughs> yeah. There was the yeah. The, it, it, it's 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 a season full of that one disease for whatever well, reason. Well, first of all, yeah. why hire more than one expert as a consultant? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And second, it takes many many episodes before your audience is savvy to what background you're talking about, and you can't afford to send them all little brochures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the house is forgiven. Uh, if 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 Discovery has a common source of criticism, it's that it's not about Star Trek. It's not about the Federation. It's only about Michael Burnham. Well, come on, gang. It's like the original series wasn't all about James T. Kirk and his many romances it's romances with women and alien and the ship itself really <laughs> there were there were there were the sidekicks though there i mean well when, sure and everybody got their day you know and and i you know they, they weren't petty about it they weren't there counting lines you got three lines more than you know like yeah, like yeah. It, <laughs> <laughs> i i give them credit it was a space opera it was all of that picard brought back guinan brought back q john delance yes q. yes and I love, I love how loosely the guys at the Oroville treat the themes that are forbidden to the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they actually do a very nice job at it. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. And, and Marty Winston, Space Cadet. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marty. The 46th Annual Trenton Computer Festival, also known as TCF 2022, was held last Saturday. It was a free virtual online event 
on tcf-nj.org. The theme of the festival was using technology to disrupt environmental change. There were over 50 talks on 10 concurrent tracks. All the sessions were recorded, and video podcasts of each talk is being prepared, and notice of available streams will be posted. The list of scheduled topics is listed on the homepage of the festival website, tcf-nj.org. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region Since most club meetings are online, you are most welcome to attend any of the online meetings. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation, How Our Most Popular Games Are Affected by Computers and Artificial Intelligence. They meet Thursday, March the 24th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is bcug.com. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, April 1st. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. Westchester PC Users Group has a presentation on cyber hygiene, Thursday, April the 7th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, April the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is limac.org. King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, April the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant. Location is 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. The phone number to confirm is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a presentation on Audacity, an open source audio editing app. Thursday, April the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live, on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch, and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again. Same time, same station next week.